Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And the story of Mt. Cox is a Bitcoin legend. And the saga of Mt. Cox seems to never end. Who was responsible? How was it hacked? Where is the Bitcoin? And how are the victims of the Mt. Cox hacked going to get compensated or reimbursed? And according to Brock Pierce, the word Mt. Cox holds such a meaning that it taints and puts a stain on the crypto space. So here to talk to me today about his plan to revive the Mt. Gox exchange and his attempt to compensate the victims of the Mt. Gox hack is Mr. Brock Pierce. And Mr. Brock Pierce has a lot of things to say about the history of Mt. Gox, the operations of Mt. Gox, and the future of the exchange. But before we get into that conversation, please, wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you're subscribed, leave us a rating and a comment and share with others so that more people can find Crypto 101 and join into these conversations. Also, think about becoming a Patreon. Patreons, thank you very much for supporting Crypto 101 during the bear market. I really appreciate it. And this episode is on the Patreon page in its raw form so you can hear everything that was said during our conversation. I want to say a special thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode. And remember that this is not financial advice, trading advice, investment advice, or personal advice. Now, without further ado, here is the history of Mount Gox from Brock Pierce's perspective and Gox Rising. We'll see you after the show. Brock Pierce, welcome back to Crypto 101. Well, I'm uh, glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. It, it's it's been about a year since we spoke last. I've been in contact with you, you and your team over the past year about different things, but it's really nice to talk to you again, sir. Yeah, last time uh, we did this call, I think I was in the lobby of a hotel in Hong Kong. You actually were. I can't believe you remember that. I have a videographic memory, so I actually can visualize the entire thing. And if I remember properly, we had to turn off the video after a couple seconds because of the internet. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in the, uh, I think I was at the, at a Mandarin Oriental uh, lobby and I was at the first couch uh, to the left of the entrance. And it was at, I think early in the morning, like nine or 10 or 11 AM, not early, but in the morning. I can't believe you remember that. That's awesome. Well, it's, it's good that you have a, a photographic videographic memory because we're going to go straight into this and we're going to start talking about Mount Gox. And Mt. Gox is a story that most people in the crypto space knows. But for people who don't know, sir, can you give us a Mt. Gox 101 and what happened to Mt. Gox before we go into everything else? Yeah. Uh, what was Mt. Gox? I guess if you're new to the crypto sphere, you've probably heard of it, but you might not know much about it other than, you know, it's uh, one of those kind of like, it's a bad word, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, it's like a curse word, one of those things you don't mention one of those sort of embarrassing uh, words. So uh, what is Mt. Gox? Mt. Gox stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. So if you remember that collectible card game, Magic the Gathering, Mm -hmm. they created an online version of the game uh, where you could play online and collect virtual packets or virtual cards. Hmm. And so Jed McCaleb, who also went on to found Ripple and Stellar, uh, created it in 2007, and then it pivoted to Bitcoin in 2010. And Jed McCaleb then sold it to Mark Carpellis, I believe for $50,000 and retained a 12% stake in the company. Okay. Mt. Gox then went on to become the most important crypto company in the world. 
It was the most important exchange where anyone that was trying to buy Bitcoin early on in 2011, 2012, 2013, it's basically where everyone that bought Bitcoin bought their first Bitcoin if you were around in the early days. Mm -hmm. It was the 800 pound gorilla. It was the most important company in the space by far. You know, nobody else even held a candle to it. And so it had this meteoric rise. You know, it was everything. And, you know, this is the first real meaningful crypto bull run. And so, you know, it went up, 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 and it was everything. Everybody was using it. And there were some problems operationally. And all of a sudden, there, you know, started to be major concerns. Withdrawals were being delayed. People had questions about its solvency. And then one day, the service went down and they said all the coins are missing. And they were supposed to have. I think 1,065,000 Bitcoin at the time of its failure. The number that's typically quoted is 850,000. We can get into that. But I think the balance at the time of failure had nothing been stolen was supposed to be 1,065,000 Bitcoin. And one day they said, we have nothing. It's all gone. Yeah. And so that was in uh, early 2014. And then Mt. Gox went into bankruptcy and it's been in a bankruptcy proceeding for nearly five years. The five-year anniversary of Mt. Cox's bankruptcy filing will be February 24th. So we are less than two weeks away from the five-year anniversary. So that's Mt. Cox in a short summary. Any questions? I do. This industry seems to be plagued with hacks and losses from exchanges 2019 already saw two exchanges my, my, my favorite shitcoin exchange was just hacked cryptopia and then we saw the private keys of an exchange out of canada go down why is the industry suffering so many hacks and losses from exchanges what happened at mount gox is not an isolated incident you know this is uh, a plague that continues to play like a bad broken record and as long as this continues to happen, how are we ever going to instill confidence in this industry? How are we better than the old financial system? You know, as this continues to happen, I would argue we're not better than the old financial system. People are better off with traditional banks. As long as this continues to happen, we are hoping that we will offer a, a service that one day might be better than banks. But until we've solved for this problem, we clearly are not. You know, the Mt. Gox collapse set the industry back by a year or two. The bear market of 2014 and 2015 was primarily caused by the mismanagement at Mt. Gox. And it was really a management issue and continues to be management issues. Back then it was a little harder, but today the technology exists to mitigate these risks. We can create non-custodial exchanges where the crypto transactions exist on blockchain and you're not relying upon a trusted counterparty to hold your private keys. We have the ability to use multi-sig tech. Why are the exchanges not using the best practices that are available today? Because management is lazy. They've got higher priorities. They're focused on acquiring more market share. They all say, well, it's not going to happen to me. We're better. I'm not Mark Carpellis. I'm smarter than he is. And then all of a sudden, it's not going to happen to you until it does. And uh, yeah, we've already had two major hacks this year. It's time for this to, you know, it's time for this to come to an end. It's time for the customers of exchanges to demand a higher bar, raise the bar, you know, demand higher standards. Mm -hmm. Unless you have something like FDIC, you know, until you have, you know, non-custodial exchanges, I mean, the exchanges need to be doing a better job. They need to be stepping up their game 
and protecting consumers in a way which doesn't appear to be happening to the degree that it must. What, what, what do you think should be done at this point then? Should governments or SECs or whatever a form of SEC in different countries is around the world go into these exchanges that are set up in their country and actually probe into their operations, shut them down if they're not you know, com- complying to certain regulations or operations that they know is safe? Um, what do you feel that they should do? Or do you think that it should be up to the individual to take all their money or out of these exchanges or stop using these exchanges and, and strictly use a DEX? And my ne- my other question with that, and I'm going to pair these together, is sometimes people make an exchange because it's you know just it's good it's good business. They shouldn't they don't have any knowledge of making an exchange. Did Mark even know how to operate an exchange? And or what about all these other people? Well, I think a lot of people do know how to make exchanges. You know, Mark Carpellis. I mean, I don't really need to get too much into into Mark, I think everybody recognizes the level of incompetence that existed there. I mean, he was the Mt. Gox cold storage account. It wasn't just hacked from one day to the next and all the coins were stolen. The level of incompetence and criminal negligence there is so much worse. The Mt. Gox accounts were being hacked for years and the cold storage accounts were being drained for years. So either Mark Carpellis was so lazy and so incompetent that he didn't bother once to check the bank balance over the course of years, that, or you know, he was aware of it and covering it up, or he was part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll go back to the first part of my question, what should the SECs of the world do about these exchanges? Like for example, this Quadringa, I don't think anybody knew this existed outside of Canada until they said, oh, we were hacked for $190 million. What should the governments do? How how do you think this should be solved at this point? Yeah, I don't think that government regulation is going to be uh, key to solving this. I mean, yeah, to some extent in the FSA in Japan has created a regulatory regime. I don't think governments are going to be effective in going and shutting this stuff down. What governments can do is what like the Japanese government has done, which is create a process for exchanges to become licensed, like in Switzerland like in Liechtenstein, like in Malta, like in Gibraltar, like in the Philippines. You have a bunch of governments around the world now that are creating a regulatory framework by which people can be licensed. And that requires checking, you know, a maximum number of boxes. And in so doing, government's saying, we think you're, you know, at least you're hitting the minimum thresholds for us to permit you to operate. So I think we're going to see more and more of that over time. But, uh, you know, the bigger thing is, you know, self-regulation. Exchanges need to be raising their own bar and holding themselves to a higher standard. And we, the customers of those exchanges, need to be asking more questions and be more vigilant in who we use and who we allow to custodian our money or our crypto, because the government is not going to be able to resolve these sorts of things quickly. So I would not be relying on the government. The government moves slow. We as consumers can move very, very, very fast, and we should. Mm -hmm. And we should be pulling our money out of exchanges that are not doing all that they can. The reason why we're here is because of, well, two reasons. You've been in the news recently. Uh, First is Gox Rising. And the second one is you're starting a $5 million VC fund for entrepreneurs in Puerto Rico. I will get into that in a little bit because I really want to hear that story. But first, let's talk about Gox Rising. What is Gox Rising? Gox Rising is a movement to uh, revive the Mount Gox Exchange. Most people heard about Bitcoin for the first time in the context of the Mt. Gox collapse. It is our Lehman Brothers. Mm-hmm. It is our Bear Stearns. You know, most people's first impression of Bitcoin was a very negative one. 
because they heard about Bitcoin for the first time in the context of Mt. Gox's failure. I mean, it was as big a news story as almost Enron. The entire planet was talking about it. And it was a moment for all of the media and all of, you know, the financial system around the world to say, ah, gotcha. See, these guys talk about their, how they're changing the world. Look at how awful they are. Ha 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 ha. Mm -hmm. You know, this stuff isn't safe. You should never touch it. Bitcoin bad. And it was basically became, you know, our global embarrassment. It became the story of why uh, a cautionary tale mm -hmm. of why you shouldn't want to touch Bitcoin and Bitcoin is bad. Mm -hmm. And that's how most people heard about Bitcoin for the first time. So Mt. Gox is like a bad word right now, but the Mt. Gox story is not over. The end of this story has not been written. We as an industry have the power to write the ending of this story. How do we want this story to end? We have the power to write the ending. So right now, Mt. Gox is a bad word. Would we like to take a word that has been used to vilify and criticize us and turn it into a word of strength, a word of power, a word of resilience? and to change the narrative, you know, we have the power to do that. It's a big, bold, crazy idea. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody that wants to talk negatively about us as an industry, you know, they like to say, ah, Mount Gox, you suck. Right. You know, you've been goxed. <laughs> we could make that a word of like resilience. We could make that a word, you know, that talks about how we're different, that we are not like the old financial system, that we are different, that we are open source, that we are better that we are the future and the future is different than the world you know. Our stories end differently because we are a community. We are legion. I, I agree with I agree with everything that you said because, you know, as a podcaster, as somebody that is here to be the crypt, uh, crypto 101, that's the, that's the name of the show, to be the 101, the on-ramp for crypto education, talking to uh, people in the industry as yourself to give the new people coming into the space and even some of the older people the, the information, the one-on-ones on different ideas, people, um, concepts, coins, projects in the space. And it seems like every time we have one of these hacks, we take two steps back, even though this whole time we're taking one step forward very slowly against all of this opposition. But going back to Gox Rising, you want to revitalize Mount Gox Exchange. What, what, what is this going to do? What, what, what is your vision for starting this back up again? Well, I mean, the vision is in short, more or less what I just said, which is to relaunch the exchange and demonstrate that, you know, we are resilient, we are anti-fragile and to change the narrative where instead of Mt. Gox being, you know, the word that makes us cringe, it becomes a word that makes us proud because it demonstrates how we're different. And I think that'll be the case if we can successfully relaunch the exchange and have the exchange become successful. Now that's a big if. That's you know uh, something that almost everybody else would say is impossible. But how do you spell impossible? Impossible is spelled I am possible. Mm. And so the goal is to relaunch the exchange and have people begin to use the exchange and have it become a lighthouse of how exchanges should operate so that we can never have another Quadriga, that we can never have another Cryptobia that we can't have Mt. Gox.2.0. Mm. To demonstrate to the world, to raise the bar, to show people how exchanges should operate and to become the gold standard or the crypto standard for resilience, security, open source, and decentralization. And now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn. 
The right hire could make a huge impact in your business. I remember when I hired a bartender. He didn't know anything about bartending, but worked his ass off and became the bar manager. This not only inspired other employees to work hard, but he was a hell of a bartender and a hell of a manager. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? You can post on job boards and hope the right person finds your job. But think about it. How often do you hang out on job boards? Don't leave finding someone great to chance. When you can post your job in a place where everybody goes to make connections, grow their career, and discover job opportunities. LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited job boards. But 9 out of 10 members, they're looking for new opportunities. And with 70% of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of the right people. So, hurry to LinkedIn.com slash crypto and get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash C-R-Y-P-T-O to get $50 off your first job post. And find that one stellar bartender that becomes a manager that becomes an inspiration for your crew. LinkedIn.com slash crypto. Terms and conditions apply. Now, back to the show. Why is Brock Pierce involved in this project and how did you get involved? Well, I've been involved for, I don't know, seven years. My background was in virtual currency and games. And so I've been doing that since 1999. So, you know, Magic the Gathering was one of the markets I played around in. Mm -hmm. Obviously familiar with Mt. Gox. It was not a very successful business in that area, hence why it pivoted uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, I looked at buying Mt. Gox in 2012 and 2013, almost bought it once, almost joint ventured with it once, almost had an option to buy it once, was bringing it to China, a whole long story. I'm not going to bore you with all the ways in which I was involved with Mt. Gox early on. You know, it was something that I spent a tremendous amount of time on, you know, was looking at buying it and spent, you know, a good year, year and a half working you know, with Mark Carpellis, you know, in a an infrequent capacity, but traveling to Japan, doing those meetings, looking at making something big happen. And when Mt. Gox failed, I called up Mark Carpellis immediately afterwards and said, hey, I want to buy the exchange. He goes, are you not watching the news? I said, I am. That's why I'm calling. And he goes, and you're still interested? I said, well, clearly you've screwed up big time and this is going to really harm our industry. Yeah, I'm still interested. I'd like to come clean up your mess and keep you out of jail. And it looks like you need some help. (laughs) You, You really messed up, buddy. Mm. And he's like, yes, please. And I said, well, I'm going to buy it from you for a dollar. I changed it to one Bitcoin. (laughs) Seemed more appropriate, you know, because it was obviously worth negative hundreds of millions of dollars at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to come in here and try. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm clean this up and hopefully uh, not let you damage the industry like he did. Um, and so I've been involved, you know, very actively after coming to that agreement with Mark and, and Jed McCaleb. We went and settled both class action lawsuits in the U.S. You know that were uh, filed on behalf of the 103,000 uh, account holders. We created the first civil rehabilitation plan to try and rehabilitate the exchange five years ago. And so I've been involved for seven years. 
so I've always been involved and now seems to be the time to uh, bring this home to help make sure that this story ends the right way. Meaning there's 24,000 victims or creditors that have filed claims with the bankruptcy trustee and making sure that this story ends for those victims first and foremost, as good as it possibly can, as fast as it possibly can. Meaning making sure that they get all of the cash and coin mm -hmm. and that shareholders get nothing. Making sure that Mark Carpellis doesn't get that surplus of $700 million. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think Mark deserves a penny. Mm -hmm. Um, so first and foremost, making sure the victims get everything that's there. Um, number two is relaunching the exchange. And number three is going and helping creditors pursue any other recovery efforts that might exist. There's still at least 650,000 missing Bitcoin and a number of other ways in which, uh, creditors can be paid further. And then there's one other major challenge. Not only, you know, do you have the risk factor of, you know, Mark trying to, to get paid potentially. But uh, you also have a lawsuit from an organization called CoinLab that originally sued the Mt. Gox estate saying they're owed $70 million, which is a crazy story. And they just updated their lawsuit saying they're owed $16 billion. So this CoinLab group thinks that creditors deserve nothing and they want the estate to pay them all of the cash and all of the coin. Hypothetical situation here. If you were to buy Mt. Gox back in 2013, 2014 for that $1 or one Bitcoin, whatever price you guys negotiated on, how would you have made things different with losses already in hundreds of millions of dollars? What would you have done? Well, we, we published it. You can go look at the civil rehabilitation plan that we filed in early 2014 as part of that deal. The story hasn't changed. It's basically exactly what I'm talking about now, which was take care of creditors, relaunch the exchange, let creditors benefit from the proceeds generated by that exchange and go do everything you can to recover. My story hasn't changed in five years. It's basically the same. You know, it's a little more polished because now we've got better information, but uh, the story hasn't changed. And we were going to relaunch the exchange back then. Mark Carpellis wanted a liquidation. We've always been fighting for a civil rehabilitation for five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, we went and partnered with NASDAQ, and so we were going to relaunch the exchange as Mt. Gox, powered by NASDAQ, and at the time, do all the things one would need to do to you know, raise the bar and set a higher standard for how exchanges should operate. And had we been live over these last five years, creditors may have already been made whole. Mark's push for liquidation is probably the reason why creditors haven't been paid yet. Mm -hmm. With your Gox rising vision, you're spearheading to revitalize the Mt. Gox exchange. How is this going to impact the process that's happening in Japan with the creditors seeking relief? And why are you doing this now? Well, again, I've been involved for seven years. So there's the now is major changes happen. One is that it's gone from a liquidation bankruptcy to a civil rehabilitation. And so the ability to do the things that we've been talking about for five years are now possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge outcome. The other major concern is I want to make sure Mark Carpellis doesn't get any of that money. And so... That's a pretty compelling reason to make sure creditors get what they deserve. Third is the CoinLab lawsuit just changed to a $16 billion demand. Someone has to go fight that. And as of right now, no one is fighting it. I think I'm the only person that's outspoken and trying to do something about it, putting myself in harm's way to do so. And nobody else in five years has tried to relaunch the exchange. Mm -hmm. you know, the bankruptcy trustee has been sitting on the intangible assets to be liquidated and no one has put in an offer that we're aware of in the last five years. 
So all the things that we've been talking about doing, no one else has done it. I have a habit of following through on the things I commit to. And so I'm following through on my commitments. Part, part of my ignorance a little bit. You said there's a $16 billion claim. Yes. CoinLab is demanding $16 billion from the Mt. Gox estate oh. so that creditors get zero. Mm-hmm. CoinLab wants creditors to get no cash and no coin. They want it all. Okay. They want everything. Where, where do they get this, this number, $16 billion? I think they're making the claim that uh, had things gone the way that they dream of in their perfect world, they would be uh, Coinbase and more. And so they're making a claim saying that Mt. Gox is responsible for them not being Coinbase. I mean, I think they should have just said, you know, 500 billion, you know, why not pretend to say we're Facebook while you're at it or Google or Apple, (laughs) you know, why not say 1 trillion? You know, I mean, it's almost that crazy. Well, just to give you a little bit of context on the CoinLab story. Mm -hmm. So CoinLab formed a partnership with Mt. Gox in 2012 to run the Mt. Gox brand in North America, specifically the US and Canada. They asked for 90% of the revenue, which is a huge percentage. Normally, you know, you'd think for you know being a, a third-party vendor to operate the US site and maybe some customer service and stuff, they'd get maybe 10%. But they asked for the crazy amount of 90% of the revenues. And Mt. Gox agreed to that because CoinLab made it very clear that it's really hard to operate in the United States. You need, you know, it's a money services business. You need money transmitter licenses and it's really complicated and getting banking and all the stuff. So this is really hard and you need us. You can't do this any other way. And we're the experts. We're the best in the biz. Mm-hmm. So Mt. Gox said, okay, that makes sense. We agree. We're going to give you this crazy percentage of 90% since you're going to be doing all this work. Fast forward six to nine months, CoinLab did nothing. They committed to being compliant. They committed to getting licensing. They committed to doing all the things and they did none of it. CoinLab was in breach of contract. They failed to live up to their end of the deal. And so Mt. Gox said, hey, you promised to do all this stuff and you haven't done anything. We're going to have to cancel our contract for breach. You know, we have cause. You failed to perform. So they eventually have to cancel their contract. And so what does CoinLab do? CoinLab then embezzles. They steal $5 million from the customers of Mt. Gox. So they did nothing. They were in breach of contract, failed to perform, and then they stole $5 million. They embezzled $5 million, and then they sued for $70 million. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Mm. And then they just updated their lawsuit, now demanding $16 billion. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's utterly crazy. And go look around. Go Google. I'm really the only person that I've seen that's talking about this. The creditors were not even talking about this. Hmm. I went to the courthouse with Mark Carpellis in Japan two weeks ago to verify that this was, in fact, CoinLab making this $16 billion claim. No one was even aware of it. I was uh, meeting up with Mark Carpellis for breakfast, or not for breakfast, but an early morning meeting. You know, I said, Mark, let's go to the courthouse and do this. And Mark's like, really? I go, yeah, this is important, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. So we went to the courthouse to, to go do that. And so we were the ones that went and um, you know, figured out that this was, in fact, CoinLab. And these are the reasons why now. There's a lot of reasons why now. It's, it's, it, almost, it almost sounds like you and Mark are, are, are friends, but it doesn't sound like you and Mark are friends. Are you guys friends? Um, not at all. I'm trying to read through the lines I've been, I've, been, I've been working with Mark for seven years and trying to help him out. But, you know, some people just can't be helped. I feel bad for him. He's sadly just insanely incompetent. Uh, and so you kind of want to help him out because I don't think it is core. I don't see him as a bad, bad guy, but you know, he's certainly not the person you'd ever want driving a car if you're in it. 
<laughs> you know, okay. he's the guy you kind of have to reach over and put the buckle on for him, mm. <laughs> you know, and make sure he doesn't hurt himself or anyone else. Okay. So I kind of feel bad for him more than anything else, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's harmed a lot of people, 24,000 that we know of. And it was through basically criminal level negligence, criminal level incompetence. You know, when he was responsible for holding hundreds of millions of dollars of customer money, he didn't care about his customers. He was literally every day focusing on his baking skills. He was setting up a bakery and he would spend eight hours a day practicing making Danish. This is when I was originally negotiating to buy the company. And I was just like scratching my head going, you got to be kidding me. You know, you're responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars of people's money. What are you doing? You don't have your security is not there. You're not like managing this business right. You're busy figuring out how to make croissants. I mean, I understand the French, you know, and their baking skills, but are you kidding me? You have a responsibility here. You have a fiduciary responsibility to your customers. What are you doing spending eight hours a day in a bakery? Get back to your job. This, this, this can't be real. No, it, by the way, that's what I'm telling you is the truth. He outsourced the running of his business to his lawyer. This lawyer at Baker McKinsey was charging two to $3 million a year and effectively being the CEO. But this lawyer had no idea what he was doing. I mean, literally, I bought 40 companies in my life, maybe 50. Mm. And I've met thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs. He's probably the most incompetent entrepreneur I've ever met mm -hmm. on earth, ever. Have you tried his Danish? I did not because I thought it was a joke <laughs> that he was busy. Well, actually, maybe I did one of these days. I can't remember. It was five years ago. All right. He yeah. may have actually, he may have brought his baking, uh, he may have brought some of his bakery to the office yeah, it passed to, out. to one of the meetings. Yeah. Uh, I can't recall. Um, <laughs> it, it clearly wasn't that good. <laughs> Well, remember, that's why he's spending eight hours a day trying to perfect it. Yes. No, it, it's, 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 he's, he's one of those sort of just like totally clueless guys that who is tr fully responsible for what happened at Mount Gox. And right now he thinks he still runs Mount Gox. He's still in the background, you know, trying to be the man behind the scenes, thinks he's telling the bankruptcy trustee how to do his job. He thinks he's controlling everything. It's really kind of crazy. I think it's because he's secretly hoping that he's going to get like a $700 million payout and he's pretending to be a saint, but then the bankruptcy trustee of Tibane is going to be the one responsible for getting him his windfall. You can't make this stuff up. Eventually a movie is going to get made about this. I mean, I hope so anyway. <laughs> you can't make it up. Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. I know you are a very big proponent to, if you're not holding your keys, then it's not your coins. Did you lose any money in Mount Cox? No, because I was meeting, I was looking at buying Mt. Gox and I saw Mark more focused on his Danish than securing his customers' funds. I didn't know that he was uh, covering up for all the missing coins. I didn't know that he might be creating a willy bot and scamming people and doing all the things that it looks like he ended up doing. I was not aware of that because he didn't let me do you know, enough diligence. You know, he was secretly kind of covering up for all the things that were going on at Gox. Mm -hmm. But I did see that he was more interested in making croissants than he was securing his customer funds. And after seeing that, would I ever let any of my Bitcoins be stored at Mt. Gox? Never. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I didn't know how bad things were, but I knew enough to know better than to keep my money at Mt. Gox. Brock, I want to lighten this up a little bit. And thank you very much for telling us the Mt. Gox story, 101, uh, Gox rising story, your passion behind uh, getting the money back to the 24,000 people who lost their money. I, I appreciate that story. But I also want to know a little bit about your Puerto Rico VC fund that you're setting up, $5 million for entrepreneurs there. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I'm always doing lots of things. 
I moved to Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria in 2017 because I recognized wherever I go in the world, lots of people will show up. And so why not go somewhere where it can make a difference? You know, New York doesn't need more entrepreneurs and more startups. You know, San Francisco doesn't need more entrepreneurs and more startups. London and Hong Kong, you know, don't necessarily need more. And so uh, following the hurricane, and uh, I'd already been to Puerto Rico a bunch of times. Puerto Rico's always had, you know, kind of been a special place for me. And, you know, following the hurricane, I moved over there to see how I could be helpful. And, uh, you know, one of the many things that we're trying to do down there is to create a startup culture, you know, to uh, help Puerto Ricans that want to create startups do so. Historically, you know, there had been no startups that had raised any meaningful money, you know, ever. If you wanted to be an entrepreneur in Puerto Rico, you had to move to New York or you had to move to San Francisco or you had to leave Puerto Rico, right? Uh, in the second half of last year, the first two startups raised over a million each. I think we're going to have a few more the first half of this year, hopefully even more the second half. And so, uh, you know, a startup culture is starting to emerge. You now have, a, you know, a couple dozen angels, uh, angel investors. You have mentors. You have a bunch of crypto people that have built and started companies and had successful exits. You know, you've got capital and mentors and, you know, co-working facilities, accelerators, incubators, you know, you've got the beginnings of uh, a startup society emerging. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, we can do to help continue to contribute to that is to, you know, set up a VC fund, a small one, because Puerto Rico is still, you know, it's in its infancy of, you know, its startup culture is new, but, you know, the ability to, you know, put $100,000, $250,000 checks, you know, into a bunch of startups. And it seems like a good place to start. Uh, my first fund, Blockchain Capital Fund 1, was a little smaller than that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't need big money to do big things. And all big things have small beginnings. If you, if you were going to look for some startups coming from Puerto Rico, what industries would you, would you like to see? What projects would you like to see coming from Puerto Rico? Well, everything that's, you know, specifically I care about social impact. So things that are going to benefit Puerto Rico. Like I've spent a lot of time learning about agriculture because in Puerto Rico, most people don't know this, but 89% of their food is imported. They only have about two to three weeks of food security. They do not have food resilience, meaning if there was another major natural disaster or unnatural or both, and something happened that impacted the supply chains, they run out of food in two or three weeks. And so I lose a lot of sleep over agriculture. So how do you bring next generation farming? How do you bring robotics? How do you start to create food resiliency? How does Puerto Rico become, instead of just an importer of food, an exporter of food? You know, so that's, for example, one category that I historically know nothing about, but I'm you know, doing my best to, to become an expert quickly. So I'm looking at everything, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because normally I'm a blockchain you know, person or early stage tech person, gaming right. person, whatever. You know, in the case of Puerto Rico, I'm, you know, uh, because I'm focused on a singular geography, I am you know, uh, horizontally focused on anything that you know, can make impact and... Uh, uh, you know, has the potential to scale. How is Puerto Rico these days? From what we heard in the news, and because I, I, I haven't been there, but the news can also be slanted one way or the other. It has Puerto Rico bounced completely back from the hurricane? Has it got back to where it was prior to that? And is it going forward? Well, Puerto Rico has largely bounced back from the hurricane in terms of all the, you know, the cities that are populated. The very center of the island where the most rural parts are still, um, you know, still have issues. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you go to any of the cities, you know, you're not going to notice much of a big impact because the issue is not the hurricane so much mm -hmm. as it is the sustained brain drain. Puerto Rico has had about a half a million people move out. So there's been a consistent trend of people with the intellectual capital, the human capital, the financial capital and the spiritual capital. You know, the people with the means keep leaving. 
And so the real problem that Puerto Rico suffers from is it keeps losing its best and brightest. Interesting. It keeps losing its leaders and its future leaders mm -hmm. due to a lack of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's the real problem. That's the thing that's really impacting the place negatively. But no, Puerto Rico is beautiful. I think it's the most underappreciated part of the United States. What was the first state isn't the 51st state, but the forgotten state. Mm -hmm. And it is beautiful. The Puerto Rican people are, are like, you know, some of my absolute favorite people on the planet. They're so smart. They're so talented. You know, it is, it's paradise. It's such a wonderful place. I highly recommend certainly this time of year. It's winter. It's cold all over most of the country. Come check out Puerto Rico. Uh, you won't regret it. Right on. And I think that I'm going to have to make my way down to Puerto Rico. Maybe I'll check you out there and we can grab a beer together in Puerto Rico one of these days and we can do a live stream uh, meeting each other for the first time. I'm going to leave on that note, a more positive note than, than people losing money and paying back creditors. So Brock Pierce, thank you very much for your passion and thank you very much for your time on Crypto 101. Sounds good. Thank you again for having me. Look forward to seeing you in Puerto Rico. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. From your perspective, Brock Pierce's perspective, there's been a lot of discourse going on in Twitter and in the crypto space about Gox Rising. So if you have any questions, comments, please send them our way and we will try our best not only to answer them or direct you to the people that can. In our next episode of Crypto 101, we're going to talk more about exchanges. New exchanges pop up every day, but can you trust them? We've seen two exchanges get hacked so far in 2019 and more keep opening up. Centralized, decentralized, can we really trust exchanges? So in our next episode, we talk to two new exchanges to get their points of view of why exchanges still can be trusted and before we go like always apogeecrypto.com that's a-p-o-g-e-e crypto.com the best place for your real-time prices and i want to say thank you very much to randy mcmillan for editing this episode we'll see you in future episodes of crypto 101